much more careful when you have this on. <laughs> it's like uh, every, t every once in a while you'll get a, uh, when you're teaching at the school, you have the head of the department come in and sit in your class and you have to really watch yourself and make sure you don't say anything politically incorrect while he's there. So I have the mic today, which I think will be the, uh, my conscience of sorts. Um, I hope I didn't scare people away because we had a few more last time um, by being long-winded. I have my wife here today who's going to give me the shot clock um, and tell me when to quit. Um, the very first lecture that I ever gave in college, um, my first teaching job was at Marist College and I was doing an intro to philosophy course. Um, and I was really excited. I was 23 years old, so half of my students were older than me or the same age, and I was jazzed up, and I gave my first full lecture. And then I had a student come up to me after class, and he said, you know who you remind me of? And I was, you know, I had all these grandiose thoughts, thinking, oh, he's going to tell me his grandfather or his father or some great political figure. And he says, you remind me of Will Ferrell from old school. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, you remember the scene where he sits there and he has to debate the rage in Cajun, um, James Carvel, and he gets up there and he just blacks out and he spits out and he keeps talking and he doesn't pay attention to the, you know, the time that he was supposed to stop. He's like, that's what you remind me of. So I was crushed. I was like, I was like this. But I do have a tendency. I really love the stuff that we're going to be talking about today and throughout this whole course, so I tend to run a little long, so she'll cut me off. Um, last week, I hope what we accomplished was setting the scene for why um, studying philosophy will be profitable for Christians, not only profitable, um, but something that we're called to do by Christ, to uh, love God with our minds. Um, and then I hope that we set the scene, kind of talking about where we currently are as far as in the postmodern culture and how we got from the modern to the postmodern. We talked about the major figures and shifting that from Einstein and Marx and Freud and to the major events that helped uh, catapult us to the current state of beliefs. Um, with that being said, we should just do like minor introduction to the field of philosophy. Um, throughout this course, we're going to study four major topics, which are considered the four branches of philosophy, uh, metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, and logic. Um, and all of these somewhat intertwine with one another. Um, as Plato said, virtue is one. So anytime we're studying anything, we're really always studying the same thing. Um, that's why we have the word, um, these great places where we study these things, universities. Um, and when you take a, uh, an etymological look at the word university, it comes from two words that seem to be, seem to not fit with one another. You have the word uni, which obviously means one, and the word diversity or versity, which means many. Well, the universities, which were developed by the Catholics and the Christians um, in the Middle Ages, um, they used the word university because they believed that all of the diverse subjects come together, the many come together in the one that is God. So whether you're studying English, whether you're studying literature, philosophy, theology, science, you're always in a pursuit for the truth of God because the many come together in the one. Um, so with that being said, Philosophy has these four branches, but they all intertwine with one another. Um, most of you are probably familiar with the last two, logic and ethics. Um, logic is simply the study of the rudiments of argument, the proper and correct way to argue. Everyone's familiar with ethics. Ethics is simply the study of what we ought to do or what we should do. Um, the other two are probably terms that are, uh, will scare people away from a course such as this, epistemology and metaphysics. Um, epistemology comes from the Greek word epistemos, which means knowledge. 
So epistemology is simply a study of what we know and what we have the capability of knowing. What is possible? What are the limits of human knowledge? Um, John Locke says the reason that we do epistemology, the reason we search to find the limits of human knowledge is so, and I quote, so we can sit down in quiet ignorance of the things that we cannot know. Right? He wanted to limit the amount of things. If he said we can never know those things, why bother studying them? Let's do an epistemology and say, what can we possibly know? And then metaphysics, um, meta is the root word which means past or beyond. So metaphysics are those things which are past or beyond the physical, beyond the corporal, beyond the things that we can take in via the five senses. Um, we actually get the word metaphysics um, in a unique way. We get it from Aristotle's students. Um, Aristotle wrote voluminously, um, tons and tons of stuff, but he never set it out for publication. So posthumously, his students went to his house, which Plato actually called the reading shop, because Aristotle had so many books, which was quite an amazing thing at his time period, you know, 400 years before Christ, to have a massive library of books. Um, and his students went into Aristotle's shop, and they went through and they found these works on the movement of physical bodies and stuff on the, the precursor to what we would have as uh, gravitational pull and the laws of physics. And they called this stuff the physica, and that's why we have Aristotle's work on the physics. And then right after that, they came to this massive area of stuff where he was talking about essence, substance, eidos, God, spirituality. And they're like, what do we call this stuff? And they said, well, we found it after the physics, so we call it meta or past the physics. Um, so those are the different branches of philosophy that we have. Those things which are beyond the physical, what we know, what we have the capability of knowing, ethics, and logic. Um, and the first philosopher that we're going to cover today is Plato. Um, and I'd like to start off with a, uh, a little anecdote from uh, N.T. Wright's uh, magnum opus here, The Resurrection of the Son of God. Um, any of you that aren't familiar with N.T. Wright, he's a, a quite a, a prominent Catholic theologian, um, and he writes just voluminously. And this is his, his great work, and it's probably um, considered by most scholars the best work 20th century on, on the resurrection um, of Jesus Christ. Um, it's long, 700 pages. But he starts off with an awesome little anecdote, so I'd like to read it to you. He says, There was once a king who commanded his archers to shoot at the sun. His strongest bowmen, using their finest equipment, tried all day, but their arrows fell short, and the sun continued unaffected on its course. All night the arch archers polished and refeathered their arrows, and the next day they tried again with renewed zeal, but still their efforts were in vain. The king became angry and uttered dark threats. On the third day, the youngest archer, with the smallest bow, came at noon to where the king sat before a pond in the garden. There was the sun, a golden ball reflected in the still water. With a single shot, the lad pierced at its heart, and the sun splintered into a thousand glittering fragments. Now, N.T. Wright tells this story for the same reason I'm going to tell it. What we have is these archers who, through all of their efforts, their best efforts, are trying to shoot down the sun, to do the impossible. And then one person comes along with the perspective that says, well, i got a way I can do this. I can never get to the sun. The sun has to come to me. And so he gets the sun in the pond, takes the arrow, shatters it into a thousand pieces. 
Um, now, all of these philosophers, um, I would like to argue, are searching for truth. Well, I, I think anyone would argue that. They're searching for truth. But since, as we all know, there is only one truth, and that's the truth right there that we see on the cross, in their efforts to shoot for that truth, they're going to come across what we would call little t truths or smaller truths that only become enlightened by the word of God later on. We can look back, um, as Paul says, we hold everything captive to the word of God, right? We hold things captive to Christ. So through our viewpoint, we can look at the little t's and the little arrows. All these philosophers, they never could have reached the sun by their arrows, but that doesn't mean that they don't give us a new perspective, right? That, we, that Plato got close when he was shooting at the sun, when Aristotle was shooting at the sun, he came up with ideas and ways to view the world which are profitable for us. But in, alas, we all must realize that we could have never got to the sun, right? Those arrows would never hit it. But because of the incarnation, the sun, the truth came to us, and that's why it was known, right? The sun came to the pond, and we could know it in that fashion. Um, so what we're going to see in Plato is all these efforts to search for truth, and he's going to get really close a lot of times, but he's going to fail to realize that we can never transcend to get to the truth, that somehow the truth would have to transcend to us so that we could know it, right? That's why it's so powerful in John 1, 1, right? The word became flesh, right? The word, word, there's logos, right? The logic of the world, the truth of the world had to come to us so that we could know it because through all our efforts of philosophy, we could never transcend to get to it. Um, so it's, a, it's a very interesting to see the viewpoints that we get at these arrows being shot at the sun. Um, and we should take all of these attempts to shoot the sun down seriously because all mankind, whether we are atheist or not, or whether we are believers or not, Plato being a non-believer coming before the time of Christ, um, he was still made Imago Dei, right? He was still made in God's image. And since he was made in God's image, he would be, have the image of God imprinted on him. So in his search for truth, he's going to unearth some things which are true, although they're not fully enlightened um, by the revelation that we have. Um, Alvin Plantinga writes, talking about the doctrine of Imago Dei, and if anyone's unfamiliar with Plantinga, he's a, uh, probably the world's greatest living philosopher, at least in my opinion. He's at uh, the University of Notre Dame at this point. But Plantinga says, a central feature of the idea of Imago Dei is that we resemble God not just in being persons, beings who can think and feel, who have aims and intentions, who form beliefs and act on those beliefs, and like. We resemble God more particularly in being able to know and understand something of ourselves, our world, and God himself. Right? So all of us resemble God. We have the image of God planted on us in the fact that we can know something about the world, right? So even those who aren't Christians, they can know things about the world and they can enlighten us in many ways. Um, as I said before, when I was talking to, to Ray last week, he asked me a question. I said, well, Ray, yes, we can do mathematics because as Van Til says, we're constantly thinking God's thoughts after him. And all of these philosophers in their truest sense, when they're searching for truth, they are thinking God's thoughts after him. We say that Aristotle founded logic. But what do we mean when we say that? That Aristotle founded logic? We don't mean that he invented it. What do we mean? We mean he found it. He bumped into it. He unearthed the principles of logic, right? Aristotle didn't invent the law of non-contradiction, right? That 
A cannot be both A and not A at the same time and in the same sense. Right? Aristotle did not invent the law of identity. Right? The law of identity simply states that if something is true, wait for it, it's true. Right? That's, that, that's a basic principle of logic. But all that means is if 2 plus 2 equals 4, if that's indubitably true, that was true a thousand years ago, and it will be true a thousand years from, not, from now. Right? Aristotle didn't invent these laws. What did he do? He found them. Right? To say that Aristotle invented logic would be analogous to saying that Columbus invented America. Right? He didn't invent America. He stumbled upon it. Right? He bumped into it and found it. So these philosophers that we're going to study, starting with Plato today, um, are people that are going to unearth a bunch of these dynamically true principles that God has implanted in the world, given us his image, and let us know through reason. So it's a powerful, powerful thing that we're going to get into today. Um, so the first philosopher we have today, Plato. Um, I guess the best summarization of the work of Plato comes from Alfred North Whitehead. Anyone familiar with Alfred North Whitehead? He uh, authored uh, Principia Mathematica with uh, Bertrand Russell. He's a philosopher in his own right. And what Alfred North Whitehead says about Plato, he says, the safest general characterization of the whole of Western philosophy is, it, is that it consists of a series of footnotes to Plato. He says, if we want to categorize all of Western philosophy, say, uh, they're all just stealing from Plato. They're all footnotes to Plato. This is the major figure. He's the dynamic figure that all philosophy, in one sense or another, plagiarizes or rejects, but he's the base upon which it is built. Um, and what we are going to do is exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, is we are going to look at Plato, but we're going to look at him through the lens of Christ, and through Christ, hold everything Plato says captive to that light and see what truth that we can unearth. Um, so let's take a little uh, trip down the history here and talk about how this philosophy and how Plato starts to develop philosophy. Um, as we talked about last time, ideas and things don't happen in a vacuum. Philosophy developed in Greece at a particular moment in time for particular reasons, right? Philosophy didn't develop in other places. And we have to ask ourselves questions, well, why? Why didn't we have philosophy developing in other places? Why was it that in Greece it developed and that in Greece it thrived? What would be suggestions? What would you think? Why do you think of all the places in the world that we have Greece, 450 roughly, if we're starting with Plato. Plato was born uh, 4, 428 BC. Um, so 428 years before Christ, we have philosophy start to develop. It started before Plato with the pre-Socratics, but we'll start with Plato. Why Greece? We have, a you have a civilized culture, so that's important, right? You have, you have to have a civilized culture. What else do we have to have in order for philosophy to develop? The love of wisdom, the study of metaphysics and epistemology, right? To sit down and study what is the true essence? What is, what is beyond the physical? No, I don't want to worry about this stuff physically in front of me. What is beyond that? What would you need in order for that to develop? I guess you would need some sort of prosperity and peace in order for a hundred percent, right? That's one of the, the major reasons why philosophy develops in Greece. You need prosperity and you need peace, right? Because if you're in the middle of a war, you're not sitting there thinking like, hold on, hold on, don't shoot at me for a minute. Let me ponder. Are those arrows actually real? Or are they just a shadow of the ultimate? No, you're worried about your survival, right? We don't see philosophy developing in Siberia. 
Why? Because people are worried about survival, right? They're worried about their immediate needs, right? So, so philosophy develops in Greece for a couple reasons. One, you have a civilized society. It's right there sunk in the Mediterranean. And think about this. We're 428 BC, so we're well before the printing press, right? 2,000 years. So in order for ideas to be interchanged be between people, you kind of need to be at a port city, right? You need to be a place where people can have free exchange of ideas. So you have a thriving commercial center in Greece. You have relative peace, you have prosperity, and you have a nice temperate climate, right? It's, that's definitely a factor in this, right? When you're freezing or you're, or you're sweating it out in the Sahara Desert, you're probably not going to be thinking about these things. So the first figure that we'll talk about that comes onto this scene um, in the heart of this thriving commercial center is Plato. And oftentimes there's confusion between Plato and Socrates, so we should flesh out that discrepancy between the two. Um, Socrates was born 469 BC. Um, so he's born some 40 years before Plato, who's born 428 BC. And Socrates was the teacher of Plato. A lot of times people get these two figures confused because Socrates was a man who has many historical similarities to Jesus in the fact that he never wrote down a word of philosophy himself. This is Socrates. Never wrote down a word of philosophy himself. He was somewhat of a nomadic man who wandered the streets of ancient Athens, preaching and teaching, but never penned a word himself. Plato is his student who, through his dialogues, has given Socrates' legacy. He's given life to his legacy, I should say. Um, so Socrates is the teacher. Plato is the student. And Plato has a series of many, many dialogues and in these dialogues, Socrates is the protagonist. Socrates, in almost all of Plato's dialogues, is the main character. Um, now, Socrates is a very, very interesting figure. Um, he was born to an old aristocratic family, which we'll see with most of the philosophers we studied. It's nice to be born into an aristocracy because if you have independent wealth, you don't have to go work the land and farm every day. You have the privilege of being a person that can wander the streets of Athens teaching people for free, mind you, too. Um, but he comes from an old aristocratic family, and his lineage is very, very unique because Socrates claimed that he could trace his ancestry back to the mythical sculptor Daedalus. Now, this was not unique to Socrates in the fact of tracing your lineage to a god. In the Re Greek and Roman cultures, if you were a nobility, many times you claimed that you descended from the gods. But it is unique, the person that Socrates claims that he could trace his heritage back to, the mythical sculptor Daedalus. Anyone familiar with the story of Daedalus in ancient Greek mythology? Mom, who's Daedalus? Yeah, Daedalus was the mythical sculptor, and he had a little punk son by the name of Icarus. And Icarus, now Daedalus was a guy that all of the warriors in the ancient Greek mythology, they would come to, like Achilles, before he went to battle, and he would want to get his weapons. He would go to Daedalus, and Daedalus would craft him the world's best weapons. And so Icarus, his son, realizes his dad has this wonderful, wonderful power, so he keeps bothering his dad every day like an annoying little child would. Hey, Dad... Um, I know you have this great power. Could you make me wings? I want wings. I want to fly like the birds. And Daedalus, like a good father, says, no, you idiot. I'm not making you wings. You're a little child. You can't handle that. The next day, Icarus comes back. Dad, can I get wings? 
and Daedalus like a good father again. No. Throughout the story, over and over again, dad wings, dad wings, dad wings. Eventually, he's like, all right, whatever. I'll give you wings. And Daedalus makes Icarus wings. And Icarus immediately puts on the wings, and he starts flying higher and higher and higher and gets right to the sun. The sun burns his wings, and Icarus falls to his death, splatters and dies. Now, that's an interesting person for Socrates to compare himself to. Well, there's a real reason why he does this. Socrates is going to hold to, and we know this through Plato, what we would call a metaphysical theory of truth, right? That there are something grounded above the physical. There are eternal truth. There are such things as goodness, justice, wisdom. There are virtues that have an independent existence on their own upon which we derive our ideas of goodness, wisdom from those things. Now, in the dialogues, what we're going to see is Plato, or Socrates in the dialogues, is constantly going to encounter these sophists. In the dialogues, the sophists were, um, they were almost like the precursor to the postmoderns that we have today. The sophists were men who taught um, rhetoric. They taught public speaking. And they were men who did not hold to any sort of a metaphysical standard of morality or reality. They taught that justice was simply the advantage of the stronger. Whoever could argue better, they decided what was right or wrong. If you could argue correct, then you could decide the rules. Now, because of this, Plato constantly throughout the dialogues, or Socrates constantly throughout the dialogues, is going to come into battle with these sophists, these men who are teaching the youth of Athens that there is no set standard of truth. And he's going to be teaching them this, and Socrates kind of sees the absurdity in this. So most of the dialogues go something like this. There's a sophist, say Euthyphro, and we'll talk about Euthyphro, I believe, next week. Um, Euthyphro will say, I'm going to prosecute my father for murder. And Socrates says, you must truly know what justice is if you are willing to prosecute your own father for murder. And Socrates will use what's known as the Socratic method, to slowly make the sophist realize how little they actually know, how deeply mistaken they are, and how shaky their foundation is. And the Socratic method is just a matter of questioning. You know, you can do this with any one of your students, if you teach, or your child. You ask them, why do you believe the thing that you believe? And they'll usually have an answer. And then you ask the question, why again? And they'll maybe have an answer for that. And then you ask why a third or a fourth time, and eventually, why do you believe that thing? Ah, I just do. And, right, and that's very, very frustrating for these elites when Socrates is systematically decomposing and systematically deconstructing their beliefs and showing them you believe things for no actual real reason. Now, Socrates starts to gain this huge following in Athens because, one, think about what he's doing. He's teaching people to question authority. So do you think that would be a very difficult task to get young kids to say, hey, by the way, I want you to question your parents. When they tell you to do something, ask them why. And when they give you an answer, ask them why again, and why again, and why again. Most of us have realized, well, I, I know myself. If anyone asked me to question my father growing up, I'd jump right on board that. I'm good with that. So he starts to gather this huge following of students. And not only that, he doesn't charge anything for his services. Like we talked about, he was independently wealthy. Well, these sophists, who are these trained rhetoricians, start to get very, very upset. One, 
he's getting their students to start question them, questioning them, which is making them look foolish when they realize they don't have an answer. I'm sure anyone that's taught before has been in that position before when you, a student asks you a really pertinent question. It happens like once every two years because most of the students don't care. But like once every two years, someone will ask you a question you're like, ooh, <laughs> I got no clue. And it's kind of a humbling position. Well, these sophists every single day were encountering this from their students. And then secondly, Socrates was teaching for free. So you can either go and study with these sophists who are going to charge you, and they're going to tell you that there is no absolute standard. It's just a matter of who argues better. Or you can go to this really charismatic guy who walks around, is going to teach you to question authority, and he does it for free. Right? Has anyone read Machiavelli's The Prince? If you've read The Prince, Machiavelli says, and The Prince is a story from the Italian philosopher Machiavelli, where he's basically talking about what does it take to be a great ruler? And he says there's two things, no matter how powerful you want to be, no matter how many times you want to smack down your people, right? Machiavelli says it's always better to be feared than to loved. He says there's two things you should never do. He says there's two things you should never do or you will always get revolt from your people. And you know what those two things are? He says don't mess with people's women and don't mess with their money. He says, if you, do, if you do those two things, he goes, you can do unbelievably corrupt things as a leader. But if you leave money in people's pocket, they're going to say, ah, he's not that bad. Right? When do we get outraged by our politicians? Right? There's all kinds of evil that happens every day. But when you go to the gas pump right, and it's 450 that day, you're like, now I'm political. Right? I'm a political person, now I'm angry. Because they messed with your money. Right? When, you get your, when you have to go and you have to pay more when you go to do your taxes... And you're like, I'm already getting taxed 30% and you're going to take more now? All of a sudden we become political. Machiavelli says, leave people most of their money, don't mess with their women, and you can do all kinds of corrupt things. Right? Something that maybe our politicians might want to look into if they want to corrupt us any further. But, so we have these people. Socrates is doing one of the major things that Machiavelli says never do. He's messing with the sophist money. He's putting his hands in their pockets because the students are all going to him to the point where they want him dead. And they actually bring charges against Socrates. And we see this played out in the wonderful dialogue called the Apology. And the Apology is Socrates' defense of these charges that the sophists bring against him. Now, the word Apology doesn't actually mean, oh, I'm sorry. Right? If we actually taught our children what Apology meant, they would all want to apologize all the time. Um, does anyone know what Apology actually means? Yeah, to give a defense, right? If you go tell your kid, um, go apologize to the neighbor for breaking his window, and you go over there and you want to give a defense for why you were right, well, kids would love to apologize, right? We'd always apologize. The apology is Socrates' defense against the charges that the sophists bring against him. And the sophists bring two charges against Socrates. One, corrupting the youth of Athens. He's corrupting these children. He's teaching them to question authority. And two, what the sophists did is they realized well, we might not be able to get the death penalty we want if we just charge him with corrupting the youth of Athens because all the court's going to say is, well, stop teaching. But the second charge, they say, Socrates of Athens has introduced new divinities, introducing new gods into the pantheon of the Greek culture. Now, that's a charge that you could get executed for. Now, Socrates never did anything of the sort, but Socrates was somewhat of a mystic. Um, he would be, there's many times that they recall where Socrates was part of the Greek military and they'd be marching off to battle and he would just stop. And then his guys would tap him and be like, come on, Socrates, you got to keep going. Doesn't budge. 
And he'd be there for hour after hour after hour. And then the military would be way ahead of him. And he'd have to sprint up and catch up to them and say, what were you doing? And he says, well, I was listening to my daemon or my spirit. Right? He, was, uh, he would meditate and he would listen and try to get in touch with some sort of transcendence. Well, the sophist says, that's close enough to introducing a new God. Let's nail him to the cross for it. Let's, let's, let's get him. And they actually charge him with these two crimes, and Socrates is seen to be guilty of these crimes, and he's given the death penalty, um, which plays out uh, much more dramatically than the way I told you. If you want to read the Apologies, one of, the, like, one of those great, like maybe not 100 things you should read before you die, but in the top 200 things you need to read before you die. It's a fantastic piece of literature. Um, but what Socrates is going to focus on and what's important for us is the idea that there is an ultimate standard of truth. There is a real truth, and truth cannot simply be what the sophists are saying, just the ability to argue better. Socrates says, when a person is ill, do you hold the physician's opinion on par with the carpenter? And when the house is to be built, do you, get, do you go to a physician or do you go to the carpenter? It seems we do recognize that some people have a knowledge in these matters and others don't. Why not also in moral and political matters? Just right there in front of you. He goes, think about this. In all other areas of study, we realize that there's a specialization. Certain people have knowledge on certain things. Right? If you guys are sick, you go to Dr. Amberato and you take his opinion much more seriously than if you go to me. Right, like, Justin, what do, you, what do you think I should do? <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, like I, I'm, I'm the worst physician there'd ever be, right? I just say, well, my body's pretty awesome. I'm just going to let it heal itself. That's what I, I don't ever go to the doctor, right? For the most part, unless I get poison ivy. Then I sprint there, and I was like, give me steroids right away because I hate dealing with the poison ivy. But Socrates says, in all of these matters, if you're going to get your house built, do you go to the dentist and the carpenter? And he says, well, my dentist says this is how I should build my deck. The carpenter says this. Well, it's all relative to who argued better. No. He says certain people know certain things on certain subjects and other people don't. There's a priority given to those people. He says, but for some hackneyed reason, when it comes to morality and politics, we assume that all opinions are equal. Right? That common saying, don't talk about two things at the dinner table. Right? Don't talk about religion and don't talk about politics. Well, why? Why is, why is there that famous saying? Why is there that cliche now? Well, because there's the underwriting assumption that there is no right opinion, so it's just going to be an elongated argument where no one can agree because all opinions are equal on these things. What a horrible thing to believe. What a ridiculous thing to believe, right? And we fall into this trap as Christians all the time, right? Believing that our theological opinions, our reading of the Bible is just as valid as say Pastor Vance, who's been doing it his whole life, right? He's been studying his whole life, but you know what? I've read Matthew, and I've, I've read one commentary, so I think that my the, theological beliefs are on par with yours. We believe this. Well, Socrates says that's absurd. There is a truth, and certain people are privy to it, if they can get to it, and certain people are not, right? We see this as one of the absurdities um, of the wonderful thing that we have in this democratic republic, right? The voting process, right? We believe that all people's opinions on political matters are equal, right? So I can sit there and I can study the political matters inside and outside, and I can go to the voting booth and I pull the lever and I vote for the candidate that I believe is best for the job. And an 18-year-old can go, you know, smoke a bowl, right? He can get high, he can, he can stumble up drunk to the voting booth and go eeny, meeny, miny, mo, pull the lever and 
all votes are equal. And you're like, wow, there's something wrong about that, right? There is something innately that's saying, no, no, certain people have a knowledge on certain things that other people don't. Socrates says, we must know justice before we practice politics. What a wonderful saying. We must know justice. We must get to the truth. Find what is transcending, what is actually just, before we practice politics. We've kind of taken the exact opposite approach, right? We, we engage in military conflicts, and then we have the discussion, is this a just war or not? Well, shouldn't we find out what justice is and then apply that standard to everything we do and say, is this just? Nope, can't do it. Yes, can do it, but instead we do it backwards. We say, Socrates says, we must always know justice before we practice politics. I had a professor that once told me, he said, Justin, you don't determine your sexual ethics when you're in the backseat of a Camaro with a hot cheerleader. He's like, it's too late at that point. When do you determine your sexual ethics? Beforehand, you say, all right, this is my standard. I must judge myself up to that. Not, well, I'll make it up as I go. It's all relative. Now, the problem is that we as a culture um, have started to tear down this platonic basic belief that there is an absolute standard of certain things are right and certain things are wrong. But when we do that, we are not really aware of the underpinning of how it destroys our own, what we would say, epistemology. Now, there's a great anecdote I'll give you here um, that Robert P. George, uh, Robert P. George is a fantastic ethicist, philosopher at Princeton right now, Um, and he gives an anecdote from maybe one of his classes. He doesn't let on because he might get in trouble, and he says that academic legend has it that there was this A-plus student in a moral philosophy class, just the best of the best at Princeton, and she writes her senior thesis paper, which is titled, There is No Such Thing as Justice. The professor gets the paper, doesn't put a single mark on it, gives it an F, hands the paper back to her. So obviously the student's upset, runs to the professor and says, hey, I don't understand. There's no markings on this to tell me why I got an F. She says, I think I wrote a great paper. And the professor cuts her off. He says, oh, you did. He goes, in the 30 years of me teaching here, I believe this is the best single paper I have ever read. He goes, your pithy prose, your unbelievable, withering attack on all religious, moral, and judicial ideas of justice is unbelievable. You've done such a good job in this paper, you've even convinced me there is no such thing as justice. So shut up and don't complain. And the student's baffled. And you see what, what we're doing here is when we undergrid and we, we deny ultimate standards, even if our arguments are great to do it, we're cutting ourselves off at the knees. Right? I've denied, there is no such thing as justice, <laughs> but then when somebody acts unjust, we all of a sudden, we want justice back. No, 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 certain things are wrong. You can't just do that. Now, Socrates, we need to understand what his standard of this justice is. And this is where he gives his famous allegory of the cave, right, of ultimate justice. And this is, uh, if there's anything you know about Plato, you can kind of get him summarized in this allegory of the cave. And Plato says, imagine that there were people who for their entire lives were stuck in a cave and they were chained to a wall. So we have a cave, we have a wall, and we have slaves that are chained to this wall. 
and imagine that their heads were fixed so all they could see was the back of the cave wall. Behind this wall, there was a fire burning. And behind that fire, the slave masters would walk by every day. So we got somebody right here. This podium is a slave, and he's chained to the wall. And for his whole life, all he's seen is the back of that wall. And I am the slave master, and I walk behind the wall that has the flaming fire, and I walk behind it with a book. What does the slave see? He sees a shadow of that book, right? And I walk by one day, and I'm, I'm, and I, and I'm riding on a horse. And I walk by, and what does the slave see? He sees the shadow of a man on a horse. Now, if you're that slave, and you're sitting there, do you say, oh, that's an interesting shadow of a man on a horse? You wouldn't say that. What would you say? Oh, there goes a man on a horse, right? Because that's all you've ever seen, right? And you've seen that, and you've seen that over and over again, and you think that is reality, that that is truth. Now, Socrates says, imagine one day one of these slaves escapes. He breaks the chains, gets outside of the cave, and wanders into the real world for the first time in his life. What do you think the reaction of this person would be? Whoa! Right, first of all, Socrates says his eyes would have to adjust, right? It'd be like when you're in the dark your whole life, and you're like, whoa! And his eyes adjust finally, and he sees for the first time, imagine, all he's seen is a shadow of a tree, but now for the first time in his life, he's seen a real tree. Now, the shadow of a tree has somewhat of the characteristics of the tree, right? But isn't the tree way more beautiful? Isn't it more in-depth? Isn't it more complex, right? Or imagine the shape of a woman, right? He's seen the shadow of a woman. You're like, that's pretty good. But then he sees a real woman one day. He's like, whoa, that is great. A real woman, right? So much better, so much more real. Well, if you're this slave, what do you want to do? You want to run back in and tell your buddies, right? You want to go tell mom and dad. So the slave runs back into the cave. And he says, guys, what you're seeing right there, what you've seen your whole life, that's not real. That's a shadow of the ultimate reality, which is like three-dimensional. It's amazing. It's way better than that. What's their reaction going to be? Well, Justin's on drugs. <laughs> so you're telling me that's not real? What I'm seeing my whole life isn't real? He said, no, no, no. That's just a reflection of some ultimate standard of, of real reality. Now, what's the allegory telling us? Plato is saying, we deeply ingrained within us all know that the things we're seeing here in life can't really be real. Why? Well, this is what he calls the kinds problem. And he says, look around the room. And we say, man, man, man. I look at these three men right here. And you look at them, and they're all very different looking, right? So I say, well, what is it that makes all of them a man? Seems like a simple question. But what is it that makes these three men men? And you say, well, these men, well, the, a man is somebody that has four limbs. Well, clearly that's not what it makes a man, right? Because we have war heroes coming back, right, without limbs. And we would, would we say, well, that person's not a man anymore. No, even Hemingway, we know, right? He lost some of his actual manhood in the war. Would we say, well, he lost his genitalia. He's no longer a man. No. Well, what is it that makes the man a man? Even further, Plato says, look around at the dogs in the world, right? Like I have my dog, my boxer, Nietzsche, right? And you look at him and you say, dog. And you look at my little fat dog, Plato, the puggle, and you're like, dog. And then you look at a chihuahua and you're like, dog, right? And, and, a, and a Saint Bernard, you're like, dog. Well, what is it that makes a dog a dog? Or a chair a chair? Well, Plato would say it has the eidos, 
It's a Greek word, eidos, so fantastic word. The eidos, or the essence of manness in it, the eidos of dogness in it. But he says, think on a larger scale. Think about virtue, right? Somebody doesn't cheat on an exam, and I say, that was good, right? Somebody helps a little old lady across the street, and you say, good. Somebody performs well at a task, and you say, good. Well, what is it that makes all those things good? Well, Plato would say they share in the form of goodness. There's some reflection down here of ultimate goodness. And without that, how could we determine these things? How would we know that something is good? We say these words all the time, but there must be some ultimate reality. And Plato says the whole world that we have is simply a reflection of the world of forms, as he calls it. There's a world of ultimate truth, justice, beauty, goodness, the ultimate chair, the real man exists up there. So when I look at these three men, I say, they share the essence of manness that's reflected down on them. That's why I know they're a man. And when I see these acts of goodness in the world, I say, good, good, good. Why? Because they share in ultimate goodness. But if we deny these standards, it becomes meaningless. How could we know even the word good, right? There's a fantastic quote here from John Milbank, and I'm sorry for being long-winded here. Uh, John Milbank in his his magnum opus, uh, Theology and Social Theory, says, For it was Plato who first unequivocally identified the good with the highest being. That is to say, before him, nobody was exactly ethical, and only Judaism and Christianity thoroughly extirpated the association of goodness with heroic strength is ironically the complacent Catholic moral philosopher who imagines that the term good is somehow more finitely secure, less mythological than the term God. Right? Think about that. There's no problem in the atheist community using the word good, but they think the term God is some strange thing. No, no, no. Those are the one and the same. Right? The term good depends on there being a standard of ultimate reality beyond the physical which the atheist denies. But he wants to use good. Why? Because there's goodness, and we know that because it's written on our hearts by God. There are certain things that are wrong. There are certain things that are right. And Plato identified this. Now, Plato doesn't fully get the picture because Plato thought that somehow we could be the slave that through philosophy escaped the chains of the cave, broke out into the real world, and found goodness. But what do we know the truth to be? There had to be some, the goodness had to come to us in the cave, right? We couldn't break the change. We can't get away from it. So in Bethlehem, goodness came into the cave, right? And it's significant. It's it's, it's unique that it was a cave, right? That Christ came into. The goodness of the world had to transcend a man because man is fundamentally incapable of transcending to the good. But we know it's there. Plato knew it was there. He just couldn't figure out how to get to it. Now, I'll close with saying, and I'll I'll quote from Milbank again. He says, Plato understood the ridiculous nature of relativism. Goodness and truth are meaningless, even non-existent, if they are constructs of individuals. Goodness needed to transcend the human condition. Platonic idealism taught us that humans stand at an apex of a natural order. 
that there is an objectively right way to be human, grounded above and beyond humanity, and not simply beneath or created within it. Right? There is an objectively right way to be a human. This is not a relative matter. There is a right way to be human. Right? That's what's at the center and the driving nature of this marriage equality debate. Right? Because it's not about equality. Right? We know that as a Christian community that we've already lost the battle on this when we start using words like marriage equality. Right? We lost the abortion issue. Why? Because we use words like what? Pro-choice. Right? In the book that I have, I, I, I note that we would have, nobody calls it, say, oh, well, I am against murder. Well, because everyone's against murder, so we can't use murder to talk about the killing of children. We say, all right, you're against, what about feticide? We all, we all know it's a fetus, at least. Can't we say you're killing a fetus? No, why? Because the language haunts us. It says, no, that sounds icky. We don't want to have feticide. So we say, all right, I am for abortion. Uh, but even that word is kind of like, no, I'm not for abortion. I'm for choice. Oh, that sounds good. Right? All of us are pro-choice here. Right? None of you are anti-choice. We all love choice. Right? But the language has been shifted, so the debate's already over. You can tell who's winning the debate. On the marriage equality debate, nobody is against equality. Right? We're arguing about what is essentially the right way to be human. Right? What, there's a standard. There's an objectively right way to be human. Right? God created man, male and female, after his own image. So we have this setup for what marriage is, right? It's a reflection of God. Because think about what the family is. The family is deeply Trinitarian, right? Three constituents, mother, father, child, right? It's a Trinitarian concept, right? Each of them together form the family, but they're all distinct in their parts, right? As the world grows to hate the church and hate the Trinity, it's going to reject anything that resembles that natural order. Plato knew this. He says, there is an objectively right way to be human. Now, what we need to realize as a church is, we know the answer. Plato thought that we could get to that form. We know deeply that through the incarnation, God in flesh, the form could come to us and show us, yes, that's the right way to be human. And we know that through Plato just a little bit off. Um, I'll close with that. Any questions at all? I think my wife was giving me the time shot clock over there. No questions at all? Yes. Uh, if there are none, I'll throw this out. Before you were talking about um, it would be a uh, punishable offense by death in, in the Greek culture to yeah. introduce a new deity. And uh, I was, I don't know if it's time that changed that or if I'm just completely wrong, but I thought that um, one of the offenses of Paul introducing Jesus Christ into uh, that forum back then, that uh, it wasn't a problem in, until he declared that he was the God, the only God. And they, they, they allowed him to speak. Say, oh, he's got another one of these gods, you know, the statue to the God, the unknown God. Sure. Like, yeah, we'll worship anything, you know, just you know, bring it forth. But once he declared that once he, 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 this is the only God, that that was the punishable. Well, certainly. And, and Plato would have, in, in the same sense that Paul could have got off the hook by saying, no, 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 you don't have to worship this one. Forget about that. I am, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes through God. We can throw that part out. 
Paul could have got himself off the hook too. And Plato equally could have got himself off the hook. In the ancient Greek culture, you were charged with a crime and usually the penalty for that crime was much weightier than it could have been and you're allowed to offer a plea bargain. And if you offered, Plato could have gone up there before the court and said, well, I know that I'm wrong and Anatus, Miletus, and Lycan have charged me with this. I'm going to give them three goats each and I'll mow their lawn for a while. And they would have said, okay, fine. You don't have the death penalty, right? He just had to admit his wrongdoing. But what Socrates does in the court case is, you know what his plea bargain was? He says, for my plea bargain, I think the court should treat me like an Olympic athlete. I want all of my meals provided for for the rest of my life, and I want public housing to take care of me. By doing this, he's basically, you know, he's, he's saying, forget you. He's giving the middle finger to the crowd, right? He's saying, I don't care. I'm right. I'm objectively right. I'm not going to kowtow to you and say, let me fit my scheme into you. So yeah, he could have got off the hook just like Paul could have, but he stood to an absolute ideal. No, this is the only way, my way, the truth. So certainly, very, very similar. Any other questions? Wonderful, then let's close with prayer. Uh, Dear Lord, thank you for this time that we all have together um, to study your word in a unique way um, through all those creatures that you have made in your image. Um, And I pray that it will be profitable for all of us um, in our daily lives. Uh, Please bless us this week as we go about our daily activities and bring us safely back here next week. In your name we pray, amen. amen.